Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Daniel Sharp. Daniel is a student and he's a contributor to Aereo. He is basically a book reviewer there. And I was going to be speaking to him about a article he just recently wrote about Hume. Specifically, it was changing of a name that had, of a building's name that was named after David Hume at the University of Edinburgh, but now it's being changed because it needs to be decolonized. Um, Daniel, thanks for coming on. Uh, thank, thank you very much for having me. So, I don't so know, do you want me to give you a rundown of the of the David Hume yeah, story? Yeah, I was going to say we start with that. Hume? Like, so because we're seeing this a lot now, you, you know, decolonize this, decolonize that, and you know, I think it was Cambridge that wanted to get rid of Shakespeare because they needed to decolonize English. Um, so, like, how is this? Okay, I understand post-colonial theory, and that you know makes sense for the UK. But how is critical race theory getting over to you guys? Like, I mean, that's a purely um, you know it comes from American legal tradition, and yeah. you guys are using it. Like, I, I if you want to put it in that context, yeah, I think. Well, I think somebody said something to me quite recently, actually, that uh, part of it is because. Um, well, American culture obviously has had a huge influence on the rest of the world, mm-hmm. uh, for for better or for ill, uh, and that now includes uh, U.S. Uh, critical race theory and so on. So, if you have, as you've had in the U.S., you've had George Floyd and all these protests and all those issues, and it's really it's been really sort of kicking off in the U.S. That kind of just naturally has a sort of cultural link to Britain in particular, but not just Britain, you know any other area of the world that's that's you know linked in with 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 the u.s because the u.s is such a global cultural um hegemon to use a (laughs) use a slightly academic term uh so yeah so it's just like you know we have mcdonald's uh we have reality tv from america and now we've got critical race theory so you could you could see it as just another element of of (laughs) of american dominance in a way I gotta oh, put. I, I gotta push back just a little bit because the reality TV. I mean, you guys started Geordie Shore, and then we got <laughs> Jersey Shore. So come on. <laughs> well, okay, maybe maybe that's not quite fair. But... <laughs> Sorry, you didn't mean to. I <laughs> know, uh, but I think, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure the exact linkages, but I think probably it's just got something to do with the fact that if it kicks off in America, then. And because it's kicked off so so, I was going to say so bigly in America, mm-hmm. we use that word. Um, then there's kind of a knock-on effect, and people in the UK or anywhere else who might be sympathetic to those ideas have to immediately be seen to to be doing something as well because you know every, people in America are doing it. This is happening. There's this epidemic of racism and so on and so forth and structural colonial racism within their institutions etc etc and and so you have to be seen i suppose to catch up with the americans because the americans are really going for it now so everyone else who is of that bent of that sort of critical uh theory bent has to be has to join in with it and therefore find things even in even in countries where there might not be as much racism or there might not be racism in the same way as it is in the u.s with particularly with policing I don't know if I'm making sense. No, I'm no, no. I, I mean, okay. Rambling about. Okay, it's the same thing up here. Like we get the critical race theory, and it's 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 the exact same 
language like okay canada's structurally racist it's institutionally racist now again i get the post-colonial theory a bit here i mean in the u.s as well but the way like our racism was more towards the indigenous peoples than it was towards you know black or you know south asian or asian i mean there was that as well but it was mainly towards indigenous people and I mean, something like the residential schools, we had, I think the last residential school closed in the 90s. So that's fairly recent. And the residential mm. schools were horrible. I mean, they took, especially in the 50s and the 60s, they took uh, kids out of reservations or Inuit from the north. They brought them to mainly, you know, Catholic or Protestant, like, like church-led schools. They weren't allowed mm. to speak their language. They were beaten for speaking their language. They were... You know, their culture was completely wiped out for them. And that's still being felt now. But like I said, the last one closed in 95, or I think it was 95. So there is a lot there. But right away, as soon as the George Floyd thing happened and this all, you know, started up again in the States, it was, everything was anti-black. I mean, after the last election, uh, and so this was obviously before George Floyd or whatever, the they renamed the Ministry of Multiculturalism to the Ministry of Diversity, Inclusion, and Youth. And one of their mandates is to set up an anti-racist secretariat in the government, specifically an anti-black, anti-racist um, yeah. secretariat. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the culture with the U.S., it's, yeah, it, you know, not this Trudeau, but his father had said, especially about Canada, like, you know, like being that close to the U.S. is like sleeping with an elephant. If it rolls over, you're gonna feel it, right? So, it's <laughs> so yeah, we get yeah, it a lot. I mean, I mean, I'm quite, I, I'm quite willing. This is what I always say. I, I'm really willing to sort of say, like, my sort of sympathies are very much sort of on the left, quite strongly on the left in most ways. Um, and I'm quite willing to say, you know, they're. I mean, I'm not an expert on police violence in the U.S., but I would be. I think there probably are some big problems there that do need to be dealt with, and I don't like the legacy of the British Empire very much. For example, I don't. I'm not a revisionist for the British Empire. I don't think. Oh, you know, we should be trying to rehabilitate the British Empire. I think that was a terrible and often racist and very violent um, thing that happened throughout history. So I'm I'm kind of in sympathy with that way of looking at things. But where I kind of differ is in this whole sort of, the, again, it's the difference maybe between liberals and leftists is the whole critical racial social justice theory, which is completely unfounded. And it's a whole it's a whole ideological structure in and of itself, which uh, makes a lot of very big claims with very little to back them up, uh, where everything must ultimately become seen through this lens. There's nothing that is not. Uh, that is not to do with race or sexuality or gender. Everything yeah. is some sort of um, some sort of element of the the dominant cultural discourse which seeks to disenfranchise minorities. Um, and I think that's a very different thing from from being from being just left wing. I think you can be left left wing without uh, caring but, for that sort of thing. But I mean, the left wing thing too. It's Left wing means something different in the States. It means something different in Canada. It means something different in the UK. It means something different in Europe. You know, I, I think these, yeah, yeah. these terms, I think we're, we're going to need, we need better terms. And it's because 
Okay, I'll give you an example. Like the the governor in Michigan now, they were, they, the FBI caught those guys who were planning our kidnapping. Right away, these are far-right super, white supremacists. Mm. You know, and they're Trump supporters. These guys are anarchists. Okay, one of them was going to BLM protest because he was anti-police. <laughs> you know, so it's like, okay, <laughs> there's... And, the, you know, one of them said straight out, like, Trump is a tyrant, he's not your friend, blah, blah, blah. Okay. You know, that's that's two of the six right now. What you know? What else were there? So it's because it's someone I don't like, it's right, or because it's someone I don't like, it's left. Like the, these things, yeah, lose meaning. I mean, some of the harshest criticism I'm seeing of like critical theory or critical race theory, and like you know, whatever, just a collective term. Cause we don't have anything better. Woke. Like some of the harsher criticisms I'm seeing are coming from like old school Marxists. We're like, you know, these people yeah. have nothing to do with us. Now, okay, I don't agree with Marxism, uh, but at least Marxists say that there is some sort of reality. It's like the same thing with the religious. Like, you know, the, there's religious, because churches are coming under attack in the United States with this stuff. It's being, there's there's like a schism going on in the churches in the United States. Now, mm-hmm. okay, I'm as devout an atheist as you can find it. I don't, you know, like, but at least the religious say there's a reality. I might not, you know, again, I don't agree with what they, what their version of reality is, but at least they agree that there's a reality. These people just say there, there can be, no one can know any objective truth. And, okay, so, like, okay, with that, and I want to just get, because, like, get back to the Hume thing. You know, no one can know any objective truth, but if we don't change the name from Hume, you're going to cause harm to students of color. Like, you know, and they make these, like, grandiose claims about reality like it's 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 crazy mm. yeah i mean it's uh it's it's kind of what uh helen fuckrose and james Lindsay say in, in their recent book cynical theories that this kind of grew out of postmodern ideas where there was an objective reality and it became a sort of mutated into a form where it's not that there's no objective reality it's just that there is a reality to structural oppression and therefore since that's real uh, that's what we must solve. Yeah, yeah. You know, we must solve the discourses around around the sort of hegemonic uh, culture which are oppressing people, and that that is real, and that's why it's no longer just a sort of obscure, slightly stupid academic thing. It's you know a, a real force for for activism and change. Yeah, I mean, again, it's okay, like I I did a short thread on this last night. It was. This idea that, um, and this comes out of critical theory, so that this was Herbert Marcuse and his idea of repressive tolerance, which, and like, once I started reading about this, you could just see it everywhere. So the whole idea of repressive tolerance, and then it's been taken a little bit step further with the critical race theorists, um, but it was not enough to allow... Um, marginalized people to have a voice. It was not enough to give them their speech. It was not enough to give them freedoms. Anything that was oppressive, anything that comes from the powers, or so, so the some of the critical race theory, like you know the powers, like you know it's it's basically the the like the power principle from Marx, but applied to culture and who who controls the discourse then controls reality, controls mm. you know so. It wasn't enough to give these people voices. You had to actively repress and you could discriminate the discourse that was in power. So you had to 
not only is it okay that you give a stage to a black person, you have to actively actively go out and censor anything that could harm that black person. Because if they hear something racist, that's going to cause them harm. Mm. Now, well, I think that's one of the most. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, but sorry. No, no, go ahead. Just on that, I think that's one of the most insidious things about woke culture. We'll just we'll just use woke as a catch-all. Yeah. Easiest term. You know what? You, people know what you say. What you mean when you say woke? Um, is the idea that each is harm. It can be harm. It can be violent. Um, yeah. In the same way as lynching can be, for example. Yeah, it's it's horrible, but I mean, I think that's one of the most dangerous things that have, that that is part of that ideology because that you uh, not like or offend what somebody's saying. But if it, if it's violence, if it's harm, then you have to you have to shut that. Okay, so this is not not only do you have to because okay, decolonization that's more post post colonial, which is more postmodern than critical theory, but. Like at this point now, I think you know post colonialism and critical race theory are like they're all kind of blending into each other. The the boundaries are disappearing, but like the harm thing. So you decolonize English or decolonize the classics. It's too many white men. So it's again, you're. It's not only that. Okay, we're gonna go out and find classics. You know, there is classical literature in India. Like they have a like a st- tradition of stoicism and they have a tradition of classical thought, which they got in from the Greeks. Um, but it went on there for 2000 years. So go find those writers, bring them back. Let, let's see what that perspective is though. If there's people in Africa, it's not good enough to do that. You have to then repress the white voices because you've had these white voices for 2000 plus years. So it's not enough just to give the voices of the, of the black and brown people because now they're on equal footing. They have to be held up and these have to be repressed so that people don't feel marginalized anymore i i, I don't i mean it, some of that comes out of fritz fanon which is like another i mean i read that back in the 90s when i was in school uh, like horrible horrible ideas um, well i think actually i mean the whole that whole that whole discourse if you like yeah. is it's not just wrong in itself but i think it also kind of paints a very bad picture of minorities ironically because it says you know these these gays these blacks they can't handle they can't handle um you know speech that might be offensive to something they might or may not believe you know these people are going to you know freak out they're going to suffer they're going to cry and shout and uh commit suicide or whatever i think it's deeply insulting to to every single minority and I, I, i think a lot of people in those minorities don't agree with it um, I mean, I, I can I can say that because I'm not just a white straight male; I'm a white gay male. But I don't know if that's. I yeah. think that's slightly old fashioned now to be a white gay male. Uh, yeah, you're 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 losing your uh, your oppression points. I mean, <laughs> so am I as as a, as a brown person because, you know, there, there was a meeting in Toronto at the end of July that apparently uh, there's brown complicity and white supremacy. So I have to check my brown privilege. So whatever. <laughs> of course, of course there is. Yeah. yeah. Um. There was a thing a few years back here, actually. Um, I think they might have reversed it. It was a couple of years ago. Uh, my memory's a bit hazy, but the National Union of Students wanted to, or some part of the National Union of Students here wanted to uh, remove gay men from their list of oppressed people. 
uh, because they were gay men. Our apartment no longer oppressed, so they weren't they weren't allowed <laughs> to be on the list of 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 the victims any longer. Uh, which is uh, just part and parcel of this ridiculous sort of intersectional framework of who is oppressed and how much are they oppressed and uh, all that sort of thing. It just it it just doesn't it makes no sense. Yeah, and it's also of course the case that you know gay men are still you know being murdered in various parts of the world. No, but but that's just it, right? But they're not oppressed. They're no, no. Okay, they're not oppressed, but also. Okay, so so to gay men being murdered around the world. Let's Iran and Pakistan and Pakistan recently started doing this as well. So Iran, if they catch two gay men or two lesbian women, they do give them the option that one of the like so either one of the two gay men or one of the lesbian women can go through you know a sex change operation. They can transition, and that's paid for by the government. So Code Pink and Pink News laud this as look at how progressive they are and look how trans-inclusionary <laughs> they are. Now it's like, okay, but wait a minute here. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> oh, man. I mean, it's... So, yeah, they're not... I mean, it's either we're going to throw you out the, you know, the window of a 12-story building or the roof of a 12-story building or, we're, or you can transition. I mean... Yeah. Neither one is actually okay. I guess if you're living, but still, I mean, come on, it's oh, it's, it's well. That, awful. that reminds me slightly of uh, uh, you know Alan Turing, the great computer scientist yeah. mathematician, who was given a course after he'd uh, been arrested for engaging in homosexual behavior. Uh, he was a choice between jail and hormones, which uh, would sort of feminize him. Uh, uh, and he chose the hormones because obviously he didn't want to go to jail, uh, mm. and he ended up killing himself. But I, I, I kind of want to. Uh, maybe I should. I feel like that could be one new sort of parody paper you could write. Uh, how, how the Alan Turing affair shows uh, the British uh, government's uh, trans inclusionary objectives <laughs> in 1950, 50, whatever it was. Yeah, but I mean, no, but I mean, it's, it's, it's okay. It's one thing to talk about that happening. But to laud them for it, like that, that's where I, you know, like that's where this stuff really, really loses me is, okay, critical race theory. Derek Bell, when he started writing that stuff, brought up some really, really good points. And, you know, Crenshaw, when she wrote her first paper on intersectionality, even her second one, like mapping the margins, there was a lot of good points until she got to the end where she ties it in with postmodernism and, you know, identity politics and all that. But it's. You know, yes, racism is a bad thing. Yes, racism still exists, and in some places it's horrible. Let's deal with racism. But then it just goes off the rails. I mean, like, especially... So, like, now with the, the gay and the trans stuff, and then you throw in queer theory into that as well, because a lot of people just hear queer theory and think, okay, that's just about homosexuals. But it's like, no. You know, you have them saying, like Pete Buttigieg, when he was running for the Democratic uh, leadership... Yeah. Oh, because of his privilege, no. he's not really a gay man because he doesn't embrace his queerness. He's just a man who sleeps with other men. It's like, pardon? <laughs> Do you know the definition of gay? <laughs> no, but but that's just yeah. A... No, I remember that there was you know he's he's not queer enough. He might be or he might be gay, but he's definitely not queer. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean that that's a vote winner right there, without. <laughs> This is how the Democratic Party is going to win by electing, by by sort of policing the queerness of their 
their candidates. Okay, but yo, I mean, they're running against Trump, and the guy is doing everything possible to. I mean, last time around, Hillary did everything she could to lose. Like, I mean, you know, mm. this time around, it's Trump. And mm. okay, I, I I said this. If I was in the states, I would. You can't spoil your ballots in the states, but you can vote down tickets. So, like, they usually have. So you have, you know, you vote for the president, then there could be congressional and Senate races in your district or, you know, gubernatorial races, uh, local propositions and stuff that come up that, you know, voter initiated, initiated, uh, like, you know, propositions and stuff like that, that you can vote on. So I would vote on things that would directly affect me personally, like local things, because I think you're putting way too much emphasis on the leader. Like it's not a king. It shouldn't be revered and mm. You shouldn't be going through primal scream therapy because the wrong person got elected. Like it's like, like enough's enough. Um, but I don't think either of those choices is good, and I don't think either party is giving you a clear choice of who to vote for. Like you know, I don't, I don't want critical race theory involved in government. I don't want, I don't want any of this stuff involved in government. I don't want religion involved in government. I don't want this. You know, so like, let's get this all out of there. But the Democrats aren't are sounding quite woke. And well, whatever yeah. Trump, Trump is I, Trump. I, I mean, I, I, I suppose my view on it is, um, I think actually Andrew Sullivan makes a really good point about how the the Trump presidency has. It's not only that the sort that element of the right has gone off the rails and is just completely bastardized itself into some sort of horrible, horrible mutation where it's, uh, it's just. Not it's barely conservative. I know a lot of conservatives who are just would who despise Trump, um, but it's not just the right that has been sort of fucked up by Trump. It's also the left, the opposition, have been driven so crazy by Trump that they say the the, the most ridiculous things. So the the Trump presidency has kind of derailed any sort of normal discourse on both sides. Um, and I think I think I. Again, I would vote for Biden. I don't particularly care much for Biden, but I would vote for Biden because I think it's a good idea to try and get back to some sort of semblance of normality. I disagree with Sullivan, and I also disagree with... Because Kathy Young wrote the same thing, and I totally disagree with that, and that's because... I've been looking... Okay, I've been just looking at it, you know, on the computer. I'm not, not like an academic or anything. I haven't done an academic... Look at it, but the left radicalized itself to say that Trump radicalized the left or made it worse or whatever. I think that's ludicrous. The woke created Trump. Okay, people are talking about the riots and this and that, and like they're all Trump's like okay, you know his ad, some of his ads. Oh, this is Biden's America, and other people like oh Trump, your president, this is Trump's. No, no, this is the America woke created. This has been in schools, so critical theory and critical pedagogy. So the way teachers are trained in colleges of education, that's been since the 80s. So they've been slowly being taught to teach this. They've slowly been made to turn teachers into activists to then create more activists. Now, you know, this is a smaller, small number. It's not like all of them, but that's the way they're going. Um, this stuff, intersectionality came into high schools in the U.S. and parts of Canada around 2010, like as part of the curriculum. By 2015, it was in uh, it was in middle schools. 2017, 
it started getting through K through 12 education, like so all the way through. And then for, you know, universities, it's been there since like the 90s. Uh, this guy, Zach Goldberg, did a really good study on the media and how the terms racism, racist, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he did, The article came out in Tablet Magazine, but I think it's based on his PhD dissertation or his PhD mm-hmm. thesis. Um, and like how they started using those terms racist and racism and white supremacy and stuff. And they went from 2000, he went from 2000 to 2020. There was someone else who did something similar in 2019, but that was just, it was just, you know, like going through some media trackers and stuff like that. It wasn't, and it showed the same kind of things. And so it it, it remained relatively flat till about 2008. And then it just is an exponential curve going up by 2016. Mm -hmm. The amount of times those words were used or the amount of times articles based on that were written had tripled. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah. so even during the Obama years, so from 2008 to 2016, that's Obama. You had the media running riot with how America is racist. Um, during the Bush years, it was because of Islamophobia, and they also made patriotism to be patriotic to be racist. Okay. Mm. Now, during the Obama years, you've, you know, people who voted Obama but they're losing their jobs or they're, they're, you know, and this is not Obama's fault. Like, I'm not like, thanks Obama. Just, you know, he was in power, but these people voted for him. He's a black man. They're continuously being told they're racist. They see that in the press. They see that in the media. They, they're, you know, there's more like around 2010, more and more, you can start hearing things like privilege and all this crap. So, you know, someone who works in a coal mine is being told by journalists to learn to fucking code and they're laughing at him. And his town's going under, and he's being told he's privileged, and his kids are privileged, and they're the cause of all oppression. And you're, people are sitting around scratching their heads, wondering why white supremacy is going up. Like, give me a fucking break. Mm. Like, I, I, like that, that take <coughs> that Trump has radicalized these people, I think is one of the most ludicrous and retarded things I've heard in a long while. And it's, no, the, the woke well, did I this. Should, I should, I should, I should, I should say I would, I would... I would uh, amend it slightly. I'm not. I'm not saying I wouldn't say that. You know. No, that, no I'm not saying you, but I'm just like, like, like and, 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 and with all due uh, respect to Kathy and, and Andrew <laughs> Sullivan, like you know, I, I'm not. But like that is, like honestly, I think that is an incredibly retarded and incredibly myopic take. I mean, look where this stuff came but from. But I do. I do think that. I do think you can say quite. I think you can make a very good case. I probably would make the case that certainly the Trump presidency has exacerbated those t- those things in life even if even if the woke wokeness was one of the major causes of the trump presidency it's like a feedback loop you know yeah. Every, each side just ramps up the other side to become more extreme and to become more ridiculous well, okay i i get that but uh, i mean and you could argue who who was first maybe maybe this is a bit too too watery i'm too i'm being too too centrist here maybe no but uh, but like, I don't want to take any little thing away from Trump. The worst in each other. Sorry, I, I don't want to take away what Trump. I, I get it. Like I get Trump is an asshole and he's he's stirring the pot and he's getting these people pissed off. But these people in and of them themselves. And when I say y'all, these people, oh my god! Like as soon as he got elected, it's you like I said, you had, the, you had the primal scream happening. The guy didn't do a goddamn thing. And again, everything's being written about if, if Trump does it, it's bad. 
and I'm sorry. Okay, like okay, take COVID. I'm not. Trump did a horrible job. Like like you know like there's no defensive in here, but close the border with China. Oh my God, you're a racist. Like it's like the, everything was done specifically to show that Trump is a bad man. It wasn't so much like I mean when he bombed Syria at the very start of his uh, like the, the this uh, term. You know, that I actually thought was a good thing. But again, okay, not that bombing is a good thing or whatever, but like that response was, it was a proportional response of what had happened, but no one wants to give him that, right? Everything he mm. does is is awful. And so, like, like the Women's March, okay? As soon as he got elected, they, they announced this thing. And then it got taken over by Linda Sarsour and all her ilk, and okay, if you're a Republican woman, you you, you can't march. If you a white woman, go in the back. You're do this and that. Okay. They by the time Trump got elected, they were in. I mean, they they'd taken over the academy. Media was pretty much lost. You know, they were yeah. in education. They were they were in the civil service. I mean, 2017, the Congress voted on a diversity council. Like, yes, they might have said, okay, well, Trump's in power. There's white supremacy. They had something to point to. I get where, you know, the feedback loop and all that. But again, you have to take a look at the left radicalizing itself and completely, you know. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on a rant like that, but they're, they're like. I, 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 no, 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 don't worry. <laughs> I, I, do like, I like a good rant. But I also compare it to Islam. And, and, and I, I'll bring it back to the Bush years. In the press, okay, the first few months, you know, like, like the first six months after 9-11, okay, patriotic USA, rah, rah, rah. I was okay, and I I have no problem with that. But then, like I said, they made patriotism racist after that. Oh, only racists are patriots. And then you had the Tea Party during the Obama years, which didn't help. Um, but you also had anyone who attacked Islam was all of a sudden right wing. Mm. Now, one thing I noticed about that was far right people call them far right, whatever you know. They actually read the Quran and the Hadith. Whereas the left wing didn't. Now, the critical race theorists, all this, they're reading the stuff they're going through school, they're obviously reading it. But average Joe Democrat, or, you know, liberal or whatever you want to call them, doesn't have the wherewithal of the time to sit there and read this crap because it's awful. And it's dense and it's, you know, some of it's really badly written. Um, so they don't know what they're talking about. So when... Trump bans critical race theory and they're like, oh, well, it's just sensitivity training or well, it's just anti-racism. I'm seeing the same kind of things. And then there was that Wall Street Journal uh, piece the other day about how the only good criticism from critical race theory is coming from the right. It's like, hello, like you mentioned, you know, James and Helen's book, like, give me a break. Like, you know, like <laughs> Brett Weinstein, like, you know, this is so again, you're making any criticism of this is criticism from the right. So, you know, I, I agree that Trump is an asshole and that, yes, he's going to stir the pot and he's, there's something for him to point to. And these people are going crazy, but they're not going to calm down right now. They're at this level. They're going to stay at this level. There's no coming down. There's only going up. I mean, Kendi, he was in an interview with the Atlantic and he said, I mean, but it was part of the, the thinking, right? Racism is permanent. So Kendi said, even if Biden wins, we have to keep up the pressure because if not, you're laying the groundwork for another Trump. So, so no, these mm. people did it to themselves. Trump was a foil. Trump was, and I, okay, 
this is not a support of Trump and saying vote for him. He's the guy is an unmitigated disaster. And yes, if he could get gone, I I wish he was gone. All Biden has to do is say I won't support this stuff, and I go I'd say go, go give him your blessing. Fuck, you know that's all he has mm-hmm. to do. But they're not doing it. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I think I think I pretty much agree. I, maybe I just have a slight difference of emphasis. I think I think I think Trump is just so so terrible, such great every sort of liberal norm that I think I would I would I would vote for maybe not anyone, but there would be there wouldn't be many people I wouldn't vote for against Trump. And I don't like I did not like and don't like Hillary Clinton, but. And I certainly, Joe Biden, I could take or leave. Um, if if the two candidates were, you know, the if it was Linda Sarsour and Donald Trump, then I would not vote for anyone. Uh, but and hopefully that never happens because that would be a really bad day for America. We think we've had some bad days now. That would that would be that that would be a bad day. Um, but I would I would I would uh, yeah I would vote for many many people aside from from Trump because I think Biden. Is slightly old-fashioned. He has some influence from some of some of the the squad and 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 the far left, but he also uh, has a lot of moderates who he would put into power as well, who would surround himself with in the cabinet. Um, I think it's just the safest choice, and I would prefer him over over a continually deteriorating uh, Donald Trump. Uh, okay, but again, like this is you know it's not. I'll send you a link to his new economic package. It is an equity economic package. It's it's based on intersectionality and critical race theory into economics. So that's his package right there. That's on his campaign page. That's on his webpage. That's not so. So that scares me. So you're talking about moderates. Elizabeth Warren. I don't know. Maybe three or four weeks ago, she's talking about how we need more anti-racism. Racism is a public health crisis. Kamala Harris is embracing intersectionality. So, like, forget the squad. So his VP, Warren, who was running, you know, who was respected in the party, right? She was running for leadership. Um, and his own economic plan. So, again, this is, I, I think, like, I said this in the last Canadian election as well, because we had shithead Trudeau and a bunch of other retards. Um and I just said, we don't have a choice. I go, the best thing you can do is spoil your ballot. And at least on our ballots, we could spoil them. And the spoiled ballots get countered. And I said, just write something. Like, give me a better choice. And you get 10% of the population doing that. These elections are so close now that if you can win over that 10%, you'll win. Right? So this time around... Well, like, I, I should I should say... Um... I'm not. I'm not. I'm not opposed to not voting or to spoiling ballots because in the last general election here in Britain, that's exactly what I did. I spoiled my ballot. The choices on offer were just uh, choices that I did not want to to be responsible for, and I thought it was an insult to the electorate to have those choices. Um, so it's not that I'm against um, abstaining, but in a specific case, yeah, in this presidential election for the US, it would be very difficult. To sway me uh, away from voting for anybody other than Trump, and maybe I mean I know some people would say that's Trump derangement syndrome, um, but I think I think if I think I respect the American uh, Constitution actually and the American political system and liberal democracy too much to have Trump for four more years. See, but that's again because I respect that system. 
That's why I'm saying, especially in the States. Okay, so Trump's like, okay, I'm going to do get a 1619 project out of education. That's outside his jurisdiction. Yes, there's the Department of Education federally, but education is a local thing. Policing is a local thing. Mm-hmm. I'm saying change your focus. If this is what really is getting you, because there is that separation of powers, and okay, you're saying, oh, Trump's trampling over the, but you know, the Supreme Court has stopped him. And even, you know, like after Kavanaugh got in, Kavanaugh voted against the Republican, you know, ideals on, on one of the, or not voted against. He decided against something that was a Republican stand. Mm. So you have these checks and balances. If you want this stuff fixed, if you're opposed to this stuff, like, like if this is your, you know, one major issue, because I know for a lot of people, at least online it is, forget the federal election. Look at local. Again, you you can write in on your ballot, so write in something like your choices suck. If they see like, like someone's going to notice that, if they see enough of that, maybe in the midterms they'll give you better choices for representatives, you know. And then the following election, you won't get two like almost eighty year olds. Like, like yeah, let's yeah. look at that too, right? Like they're both almost eighty. <laughs> they're like Trump's seventy four and he's seventy six or something stupid like that. Like, come on, give me a break. So that's what I like. So there, there is a lot of separation. There is a lot of, you know, checks and balances. If you don't want, if you're afraid about, okay, maybe Trump will get in or whatever, vote for the Senate and the Congress. So you're going to have gridlock for at least two years until the midterms where the Senate and the Congress is democratic and Trump might get in. But I don't think in either case you want a democratic president and a democratic house or a Republican president and a Republican house. I think you should want, if you're voting Republican for president, vote Democrat for the House. If you're voting Democrat for president, vote Republican for the House. I think you want those two things separate, mm. um, especially now. You want those checks and balances because there is no sane choice. And I get what you're saying about Trump. Like, I, no, I, I would never in a million years put my name down, you know, like like pull, pull a lever for Trump. No, that's not going to happen. But I, I, I love to put anything down for, for Biden either. I, I don't. I don't trust the Democratic Party. I think Biden's probably a very decent well, guy. I think I think because you mentioned actually um, uh, Trump and Syria, um, the the bomb uh, the raids that he did. Uh, I can't remember the exact name of the area. The it was in my mind a second ago, but yeah, his uh, after the the chemical attacks, uh, his 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 bombing on Syria. Um, I would I want to shore up my non derangement. Uh, principles okay. by saying I actually wrote an article at the time in defense of those actions that he took and I could name a few other actions that I think yeah. Trump should be given credit for or that are at least not bad you know the recent Israel and Gulf state peace deals you know yeah. those are pretty good things exactly um, yeah. so you know I just I would like to shore up the range of uh, credentials by by I point out that I think there are, there are some things that you can say Trump has done well on or has not done terribly on, um, but even while I'm saying that, I would still I would still stand by not by doing pretty much anything to get him gone. Yeah, I mean, I get that, and again, like I said, I mean, for for me, it's because okay, we're both not in the U.S. Obviously, so any Americans listening, I mean, like eh, stupid Scott, stupid Canadian, telling us what about our politics, <laughs> but <laughs> no, I mean, okay, okay, but for like, yeah, well, Donald Trump's mother was Scottish, so uh, yeah. 
but, he's, but uh, he's one he's he's one of our very worst uh, exports <laughs> to the world. Sorry, sorry, sorry to the world. Yeah, but yeah, I know. It's like I said, I I don't have a, I don't really have a dog in the fight, but I just think that Trump needs to. Well, a Trump needs to go, but you need to have a very good alternative. Anyways, okay, so in, yeah, enough of American yeah. politics. Let's let's talk about Scottish politics here for a second. Yeah. Okay, yeah. the new proposed <laughs> hate speech law that you guys have going on there. What's all that about? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I've been opposed to that for a long time. I wrote to the Justice um, Committee on this. Uh, and... Well, well, the sort of story is that this hate speech law is it does one very good thing. It abolishes old blasphemy law, so that's good. But then it also brings in new uh, regulations on speech, which includes uh, something that if something is intended or likely to stir up hatred, then it can it can be illegal. It can be prosecuted. And I mean, I I mean personally, I think most hate speech laws are probably not not worth having in the first place but this particular law with with its very sort of vague and nebulous wording could allow for any number of abuses something that is likely to stir up hatred yeah who decides that and how do you decide that and that could that could mean if you if you comment on trans activism or religion or any number of issues then you might you can it doesn't matter whether you intended to stir up hatred it matters that it might stir up hatred or offense yeah i mean okay you share a picture of a harry potter book, dangerous all of a sudden road it, to go down yeah sorry like i said you you, 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 <laughs> you share a picture of harry potter book and you're you're being a transphobe because jk rowland's a transphobe so you know well that's offended me because i'm trans i'm trans and uh, you're transphobic and i mean again that comes back to the idea of repressive harm or repressive tolerance, sorry. Like, you know, this yeah. might potentially cause someone some offense and then thereby some harm. Mm. So we you can't speak it. Like, okay, mm. but didn't Mill and Milton and, you know, like, aren't these people all Scottish? Like, did this come up from there? Like, <laughs> didn't the arguments of free speech come from? Well, uh, I think, uh, I think. You would have to. I would have to look at. I think Mill's father was Scottish, James Mill. Uh, Milton Milton was uh, was English though. Okay. I think. Yes, but I mean, yeah. I mean, there have been plenty of uh, important uh, liberal and free speech advocates from from our fair nation. Um. I, I, so you're quite correct. It's 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 quite disappointing to see this happening. Um. In Scotland, of all places, you know, one of the one of the homes of the Enlightenment. This this law in Scotland has has been quite interesting, and I think I don't actually think it will go through because it's it's going through a long process in Parliament and it's stirred up such a huge and broad opposition to it. You've got the set, the National Secular Society, Humanist Society of Scotland, allied with Christian groups and the Catholic Church. There's there, there <laughs> pretty much every group who would normally be opposed. Have sort of come together to to express their their opposition to this bill, um, and yeah, the government has taken uh, has has kind of taken this on board, and it seems that there will be a much longer fight on whether this will go through or not. And so yeah, I think the amount of opposition that's stirred up, I think, is quite uh, quite a good sign, quite good news. And I think I think with within a lock, it probably won't happen, but it'll be 
a good few months at the very least before we hear anything more on it yeah. as it goes through Parliament. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, like, again, I still don't... Like, to me, that's just so antithetical. Like, we're going to shut down this speech because it's harmful to someone. In Again, that like a lot of people focus on the oh, you're shutting down that guy's right to speak, which I think is very important. Like, it's, it's, but no one focuses on the fact that, well, that's kind of infantilizing. Like you were mentioning, oh, you know, all oh, the poor brown people and black people or gay people can't hear these things, right? Mm. But the government's now deciding what you can hear, and they're making that decision for you. I think I think that's where the argument should be made. Like, screw you. Mm. If I don't want to watch South Park, I won't. You know, like... No, but I mean, that, that's... Treat the adults like the adults in the room. Obviously, you know, you got kids. You don't want your kids to watch porn. That's, mm. that, you know, which I don't I don't think kids should be... But, you know, but that's on you, right? You don't want your kids to watch <laughs> South Park. That's your decision as a parent until they're old enough and they be, they can make those decisions. But yeah. as far as adults go, like... Again, I see this more and more in politics where... We're pushing, you know, the people who want this. They want the control. They, they, I don't know, like, like they weren't hugged enough as a child or something. So they want mommy and daddy to take care of them. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's 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 exactly the danger, actually. Um, uh, you you've probably seen the video, which is a very good video uh, of Christopher Hitchens's speech in a debate about uh, free speech, his defense of free speech. Yeah. But it's 20 minutes long, it's, it's a great video, and one of the points he mentions is that is there anybody, really anybody you would choose to give that power over you to? You know, you want to give somebody the power to decide what you can say and hear and read? There, there's nobody, unless you're, a, unless you're a slave, unless you're a mental slave, there's nobody you would give that power to, and you shouldn't give that power to. Um, but yet people now, some well, some people now are quite willing to give that, that power up to governments or organisations. And not only is that just a mark of intellectual deficiency in itself and infantilism, it's also very dangerous for those people because once you give that power up, it's very hard to get it back. So the day, the day when a, when a right-wing government comes into power and they, ha- they have this power to curb speech, then maybe maybe some of these people who want uh, free speech to be curbed now will regret it when it comes to bite them in the bite them in arse. Basically, it comes back to comes back to hit them. But it's just, uh, like, no, no, nobody wins from this. Nobody wins. There's not a group or a person in society that wins from this. No, not at all. I mean, that, okay, the Democrats, yeah, whatever. In this, you know, so the left in the states was pushing for more and more speech laws. And they were still doing it when Trump gets in. And there were a couple of times when Trump tried to curtail speech and they're freaking out. It's like, well, excuse me, but you were asking <laughs> for this and and you were they were still asking for it under Trump. And when he does something, but not the way they like it, it's like, well, what did you expect? It's like, And they still don't get it and they're still pushing for it. It's like, you know, I, I want I, I, I sound like a libertarian or I want government to have as little effect on my life as possible. And I mean, mm. I think it's sad that the more, that the less control and the less influence that government has on your life, the more of an interest you actually have to take in government 
<laughs> and which which is like a weird contradiction. Like, I mean, you can't just say leave well enough alone because if you don't pay attention, something's coming along. Mm. But if you really want them mm. out of your life, you have to kind of get, you know, pay attention to what the hell they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think there are definitely, I would, I would probably, I would call myself a libertarian in some ways, but not, not fully because I am. And maybe this, maybe this is just part of being British uh, as compared to American um, as, you know, socialized healthcare, essentially. Um, I, I believe in free healthcare, access to healthcare for all. Um, so I think I think you know government um, expenditure and government influence is, is a good thing in many ways, but there are other elements such as speech and uh, other civil liberties that you know uh, the government should uh, have have no power over or or as little power as you can possibly get away with. Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't in good faith call myself a libertarian in the American sense at least. Oh, neither could I. But then Americans it? have their own definitions of pretty much everything, you know. Exactly. Uh... Okay, but look, I'm not, I'm not a libertarian, you know, like, like I said, like that, like, but I do think government should have a limited effect on your life. And but okay, you know, I live in Canada. We have socialized healthcare. Uh, I brought this up a few times. Like in 2014, I had my kidney removed. Spent three days in the hospital. It cost me 30 bucks a day. <laughs> I'm not going to complain about that. Okay, I mm. think socialized healthcare is a good thing. <laughs> but we also have uh, a. Pro- but that's a pro- in- actually, I never. I- Sorry, I was. I just wanted to ask out of curiosity. I'm not sure what the Canadian uh, health uh, system is is like, actually. Well, okay, it's not run nationally. It's run. Uh, it was started as a national program, but the provinces have control over it. So each province is slightly different. Um, mm. Like in Quebec, the government covers portion of my uh, my medications. So I, I pay. I think. I'd have to. I, I think if I go on the government scheme, I only pay about fifty percent of what the what the regular cost would be. Um, mm. Now, but we also have a privatized system where there is some regulation on how much the doctors and the private clinics can charge. But if I don't want to go through the the public system, if I need to get a you know like a an X ray done or an MRI or something like that, I can go to a private clinic. I can pay a few hundred dollars. We can get a donor if I have private insurance, they can do it. So we've, and that started, I don't know exactly when, but I guess about 15, within the last 15 years or so, they started putting in like the dual system. And it's not, I mean, it's not a hundred percent private, like in the States, but it is privatized. They have their own private clinics. It's like, okay, I can't go to a private hospital and get open heart surgery. Let's just say, right? Like they, they don't have them like that. Like that still yeah. goes through a public hospital and stuff like that. But yeah, so I mean, but it's it's administered by a province. Like in British Columbia, based on your previous year's uh, earnings, you pay a premium. It's it, it's not much, but then again, that goes towards your your medications and stuff like that as well. In Quebec, it's just straight off your taxes. There's no other premium on top of that comes off. Uh, Ontario, it's straight off your taxes as well. So it's, I mean, I, I'm sure it's like similar scheme to what you guys have, but like yours is mm. nationally, right? It's ours is. You know, province to province, so it's yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, like I said, I'm not. Yeah, sorry, libert- I, 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 I know, I know. I, no, no, it's it's fine. Sorry, I, like, but like I said, I'm not a libertarian in the sense of you know Ron Paul or anything like that. I, I we need government structure. Like I, you know, you need police, you need the military, you need all these things. But when it comes to things like speech, or even you know, like here they call it the sin tax. So every year, like their price of cigarettes 
they go that cigarettes, alcohol, and gas goes up. So they call it like, like you know, that's the syntax. And it's like, okay, I don't want <laughs> government regulating my behavior. I don't want government regulating, uh, like I said, my speech or, or things that are in my personal life. You know, I don't want government in my bedroom. I don't want government, you know, like any of that stuff, get it out. But yeah, socialized healthcare, that makes sense. You know, public schools, do you want to argue that public schools are a threat or whatever? Because I know a lot of libertarians don't want that. But if someone wants to homeschool, they have the right, they should have the right to do that. Like, so like, like, like there's things like that. Like in that sense, I'm, you know, more libertarian leaning, but I'm not, you know, no way I would mm. go down that road. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, since you, since you bring up cigarettes and alcohol, that's one of my big bugbears of modern politics is, I think it's pretty much everywhere, but especially in Britain, the sort of prices of cigarettes have just skyrocketed in the past decade or so. And it's become so expensive because they keep putting taxes on them. Um, and one of my one of my hopes for the Boris Johnson government here, Conservative government, was that he has a bit of a record for some sort of more libertarian um, ideas. Um, and I was thinking, ah, well, maybe finally, finally, we might uh, we might stop these taxes and cigarettes, but it's not happened. Cigarettes have increased in price uh, again. <laughs> um, so that was that was that was a bit of a disappointment to me. I mean, I didn't vote for him. And as I said, I spoiled my ballot. But if there was one, one thing yeah. that I hoped happened, uh, that would have been it. But nope, no luck. But there was a... Okay, so this was back in the mid-90s in Quebec and Ontario. It started in Quebec and Ontario followed suit. Just Cigarette prices, I think, at that point were about $10 a pack. So, this, you know, like back then, that was an insane amount. Um, they dropped dramatically like they came down to about four bucks a pack they took away like majority of the taxes because what you were having was on native reservations they were selling these illegal cigarettes so like we had a we had a brand here called export a they would just change that to export b <laughs> they would or import a like they would just change the name and they would sell them so you could buy these really horrible smokes uh, but they're cheap so you know like mid nineties, early nineties, I was in university. So yeah, yeah, anything cheap was good for me, <laughs> but yeah. there, there was so much of that was happening that the government was losing money. And so they just cut all the taxes and then mm. the cigarettes went back down to about three or four bucks a pack and Ontario had to follow suit. Cause they were, you know, like it was just a lot of stuff from going over the border, like from province to province. But now like it's back up to about 14, 15 bucks a pack. <laughs> I once googled uh, the the cheapest cigarette prices in the world. I think Bosnia is quite uh, quite good for cigarette prices. So I, I have been seriously considering moving to Bosnia just for that reason only. Um, um, I don't remember how cheap. Also, it also, I really annoyed by the the the, the smoking laws for pubs. Oh god! And restaurants and stuff. I think it would be wonderful to be able to smoke inside pubs. Uh, but nope, that's the worst thing Tony Blair ever did was a uh, ban. Smoking ban. Okay, but I mean, here... Like some some people would say they're at war, but I would say the smoking ban was the worst Tony Blair well, policy. I, I don't like that, Paul. Like, we did the same thing here. But in Quebec, it's gotten to a point where if you're sitting outside on a terrace, so, you know, you got a pub or something, you're at a bar, it's a summer day, they've got a terrace, you're sitting outside. Even there, you're not allowed to smoke, mm. but that's considered inside the restaurant. It's like, but... Yeah. 
but I'm outside. You know, like you're sitting outside, there's cars driving by or whatever. <laughs> no, no, no. That's bad for your health because you're getting smoke in. It's like, hello. <laughs> um, yeah, that's some of the things. Yeah, like the, the way the government works, it's it's ridiculous. I was I was <laughs> I was going to say actually, this was slightly meant to be about David Hume Tower. Yeah, and well, I, I think I don't think we've spoken. We've not not spoken at all. We went completely off the rails. Very but that's much fine. about that. Uh... But if you want to get, yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm I'm fine. I'm happy to sit here and talk. If you want to talk about, like, yo, yeah, let's let's talk about that because that's that is where this came from. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, no, yeah. I'm definitely. I'm a. I've got nothing to do. All the pubs and restaurants are closed <laughs> in Edinburgh now, so you know there's nothing, nothing, nothing for it. Um. Uh. So yeah, David Hume Tower. Shall I? I shall yeah, just. Yeah. Let's get into that. I want to give you a brief rundown of of events. Um. Well, I think it was back in July, maybe June. A student at my university called Elizabeth Lund started a petition. To rename David Hume Tower uh, because he had made in the 18th century some very racist comments um, in one of his essays. Uh, so therefore, David Hume Tower was—it's a building on the university campus here—was was therefore harmful now to black students. Um, so she started that petition. It got a bit of traction. Uh, there was a debate hosted by the Black Head Movement, which is a movement. Uh, that seeks racial justice at the University of Edinburgh. Um, so they hosted a debate where I spoke against the motion of renaming the tower. Uh, obviously, I was unsuccessful in that endeavour because a few weeks ago, um, the university very quietly announced uh, that they were removing David Hume's name from from the tower and henceforth it is to be known as Forty George Square. Until 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 such time as they come up with uh, somebody sufficiently pure and saintly to to adorn the the the, the tower. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of that was in response again to George Floyd and this sort of big ramping up in this in in the in the search for racial justice, and a lot of people felt they need to they need to take this into their own hands and to do it in their own way. And I think one of the things that people could find at Edinburgh was David Hume. Um, even though he his work is not really about slavery or about race or black people, but it's just because he had um, made some unsavory comments and and I think he gave some money as what uh, one of the historians uh, found quite recently. He gave some money to a friend who was looking to invest in uh, I think uh, Jamaica or something uh, for in a plantation. So that was the extent of his involvement with the slave trade. Um, and that therefore was enough to say, okay, we don't, we don't want his name on the tower anymore. Um, and that's what started this whole, this whole uh, debate, which is obviously now ended in victory for, uh, for the, for the blackhead movement and for the people who wanted to see his name removed from, from the tower. You're going, you're taking away David Hume's name because, you know, he wrote some naughty thing and then you name it for King George. <laughs> Like, well, you see that—that is—that is. Well, I think actually, I think that may be a slight. I, I mean, you would have thought it was King George, but I think it was actually named after after somebody else called George. But I don't think actually George Square is named for for the king. I think it's named after somebody else. Um. So I think I think and in, in defense in defense of the uh, the the inquisitors, I will say that the George in question 
Christian is not the royal George, okay, as far no. as I'm aware. Okay, fine. I, I don't know that, but it just, you know, like when you hear that name, I mean, when you hear the name George associated with, you know, anywhere in the UK, you're going to think like one of the kings. I mean, like, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of where it goes, but it's still, it just mm-hmm. didn't they? Okay. I mean, it, it comes back to what we were talking about, about, um, about harm, yeah. uh, speech, or, or, or the names of buildings are harmful or can be harmful. One of the things during the debate, it was hosted online because obviously COVID quarantine, etc. So I kind of I disconnected quite a lot during the debate. I had a bad internet connection, so I missed quite a lot. Uh, but I was told afterwards by by some friends who had who had attended, who had listened, that one of the one of the other people on the other side of the debate had sort of questioned our if if you're against removing David Hume's name, then maybe you're complicit in some sort of racism or white supremacy or something like that and uh, I, I wish I'd gotten the chance to reply to that because I think that was uh, that's that's some allegation to to throw out there yeah but that's this thing okay white supremacy doesn't mean white supremacy anymore you know um, mm. anything that upholds the system of whiteness is white supremacy you know it's it's like, so again, go, going back to the media with, with Trump and whatever, these people keep hearing that term and they're, oh, he's a white supremacist, blah, 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 blah. Or like I said, you know, I'm a brown person and I'm complicit in white supremacy. And the reason I'm complicit in white supremacy is this. White people will hire brown people to show that they're not racist and they're only doing that there for their own advantage. That comes from the idea of interest convergence from Derek Bell. Brown people mm-hmm. take those jobs instead of letting black people have those jobs. So but by brown people taking the jobs that white people give them, they're allowing white people to say, see, we're not racist, the system's not racist, and helping to keep black people down and helping to keep up, propping up that system of whiteness. That's what they mean. Mm-hmm. So the average person hears white supremacy, they that's think a... they think KKK, but that's not what these guys mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean... Uh, on that on that point, I'd be quite interested to know if there was, if there had been any sort of empirical work on on what did. Pardon that last, last bit cut out. Does he know for a fact that? Uh, sorry, if there had been any empirical work on what Derek Bell is sort of claiming there, about whether white people were hiring brown people for a specific political purpose to show their non-racism or their. Okay, no, no. Derek Bell uh, didn't specifically say that. Derek Bell came up with this idea called increased convergence, and he said that. All right. Oh, that Okay, he said that the only reason white people will ever... like So the reason they pass a civil rights law, because it eventually helps out white people, They will only, even if it's doing something that's to fight racism, they're only doing it because it's in their own best interest. They're not doing it out of altruism. Mm. Right? Okay, I think passing the Civil Rights Act in the States, yes, that benefited white people as well as black people. Why? Because it benefited society as a whole. So if you want to look at it that way, yep. yes, they, but you know, it's, it's, everything is an ulterior motive. Everything is to, to, to hold up the system. So they've taken that idea from Derek Bell and the idea of interest convergence and you know, gone to a, a further extreme. Again, I equate this yep. to like things in Islam. Like I, I, because I do think this is very religious like and stuff. So I do have, I, 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 I come bringing it back to Islam. Like Derek Bell in, um, I think it's Faces at the Bottom of the Well, uh, he wrote that the poorest white, 
even for the poorest white people. So like a homeless white person, a junkie homeless person will still be able to look down at the black faces at the bottom of the well because he knows he's superior to them. Mm. Okay. So people are like, oh, well, you know, he's just talking about socially. It's not like that this homeless person is actually more privileged in the fact that they've got money, blah, blah, blah. And all that, just that how they're more socially acceptable. I'm like, no. Like, these ideas have consequences. Like, and I'll, like I said, I bring this back to Islam. Like, in the Quran, it never says anything about the niqab or the hijab. It's women have to dress modestly. There's also a, a call for men to dress modestly, but, you know, whatever. Men have to avert their gaze, blah, 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 blah. Um, the idea of the niqab and the hijab came out of the hadith. Now, ideas matter. The Quran says women have to be modest. There was a hadith about how someone came to visit the prophet and uh, I think it was Umar who was there, put a curtain between uh, this person and the prophets and Muhammad's wives so that, you know, you can't see his, the prophet's wives. And then from, and then a couple of the things with the hijab and the niqab came from things like that. So Bell comes up with this idea of interest convergence. People start writing it and expanding on it. And it's Bell never said that brown people getting hired, but they just take that idea and it goes. So, you know, these ideas have consequences. So that that's why, I, like, apologists for Islam or apologists for this stuff now, when I see them saying, oh, well, you know, he was only meaning, like, it's like, look, I've heard this bullshit. I hear it, you know, when I speak to Muslims, I hear it when I speak to Christians. It, it's the same garbage. Mm. And, and I get real, it's like, I have no more time for these people. I have no more time for apologists of any type. And so, you know, when I see this stuff, I'm like, I maybe I've read far too much. I, I spent 18 months reading almost nothing but critical the race theory and intersectionality. And I, I mean, I read a lot. Maybe I read too much. And <laughs> I need to that, that, must, that, would, that must have been a fun 18 months. <laughs> oh, I was awful, man. It was just awful. I just wanted to know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, that, I mean, like, that's what I mean. Like, so, the, like, that. What I said, you know, like, okay, brown people are complicit. Bell never said that, but yeah, I mean. Okay. But that's but the, the, the sort of general ideas that yeah. come from come from uh, yeah. those writings. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know. You've probably seen it, but um, uh, again, I have stopped using Twitter quite a lot recently. I only occasionally go onto Twitter and mm. post things. But um, so I don't know if you've seen it um, otherwise might have mentioned on twitter but the sarah hader um i her cle uh later conversation yeah i've seen that they're yeah. discussing yeah mm -hmm. the, the sort of woke the woke ideology and and its relations perhaps to islam or islamism um because i think i think her cle says that one of the i mean the, this is probably where it all well not not where it started but certainly where for a lot of people including me it came into the sort of wider public consciousness was this idea of liberals excusing Islam or oh, yeah. jihad or Islamism. That was, that was that was kind of the first inkling, I think, that some of us had about oh, this sort of thing. And it's tied up with post-colonialism and Edward Said and Orientalism and, and, yeah. and has become even more in the past decade tied up with critical social justice uh, theory. Uh, but that was that was interesting to see that as the kind of the first sort of maybe the first uh, major sort of public um, indication of this trend. 
Oh, okay. I was overseas when a lot of that was going on. So I, I went, started working overseas in 2002. I came back to Canada in 2014. So I was in war zones and stuff. I, and social media wasn't a thing. So I didn't really see much of it. I saw a little bit here and there. It was only after I got back that I really started noticing. And it was like, I'm like, what do you mean I can't say that? What do you mean I'm, a, and I, I, oh, you're putting down the hijab. You're a white supremacist. I'm like, I'm brown. <laughs> you know, like, um, so that's when I started, That that's what got me interested in listening. I'm like, I left and, you know, people were like, okay, you can say that. I don't agree with you. I come back. We've got secular blasphemy laws. Like, what the hell happened? And yeah, there's this thing where you can't criticize Islam. I mean, I read this paper. I think the paper, like, I, I didn't read it when it came out. I read it, like, after 2014. I think the paper came out in 2000 or 2006. One of those, those two dates stick in my head. It's called A Virtuous Cut. It's a defense of female genital mutilation because to get rid of female genital mutilation is to put white cis heteronormative colonial values onto African cultures. Yeah, of course. (laughs) And I mean, this whole idea of colonialism stuff, I don't know if you read that recent op-ed in the New York Times. And it goes back to so it was what some protesters were saying, not protesters, people in the West, in the UK and the US were saying about the protests in Hong Kong, because the Hong Kong protesters were holding up the Union Jack and this, you know, the, the American flag, the Stars and Stripes, and they were, they were saying, to put, democ- to give these people democracy would be a worse form of oppression than letting the CCP take over for them, because <laughs> democracy is another form of colonialism. And that was just in the New York Times this past week, an op-ed written like that. Okay, now what you're saying about Islam, it's it's very true. It's like, how dare we put our Western values on these people? It's it's like, well, no. So <clears throat> that's why they won't speak out about the hijab. Mm. Except, you know, oh, you have to give women the right to choose. It's like, yeah, okay, no, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the women's right to choose whether to wear it or not. Mm. No, 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 but you, you can't put Western values on them. Because they don't believe in a universal set of values. It's every person's way of knowing, every lived experience gives them their personal value. It's like bullshit. You know, taking knives to the genitals of young girls is wrong. (laughs) Let's can can we just agree on that? (laughs) You know, like (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, there aren't uh, there aren't many things I think. that most people would agree on but if there was one thing that everybody could agree on or that should agree on it's that it's that using a knife on a child for no discernible reason medically uh-huh. uh is is wrong that is something that every single person with the merest inkling of a of a moral conscience should be able to agree on it yeah yeah we don't Let's, let's, let's be fair. A lot of them are, are, are white and Western middle class. Uh, whilst a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of activists against genital mutilation are you know people who have either suffered it or who come from cultures where that is common. Uh, but of course, uh, that again, that's another thing you could turn it around, turn it around on the walk and say you know actually wokeism or wokery or woke ideology is itself a form of white Western imperialism and therefore. You know, you should be against genital mutilation because because that's not white Western imperialism. Yeah, but I mean, they'll turn around and say that, and I mean, I've heard these arguments that 
they've internalized the racism they've internalized the colonialism yeah. that you know it, it's I mean, okay, I, I joked around with this a while ago. I just, I mean, repurposed Shakespeare. I just said, you know, some bodies are born white, some have whiteness thrust upon them. and Or some bodies are born white, some attain whiteness, and some have whiteness thrust upon them. So it's like Tre- <laughs> Trevor Phillips. When Trevor Phillips spoke out against uh, the grooming gangs, I mean, oh, no, he's no longer black. Or, okay, mm. you know, Priti Patel, say whatever you want to say of her. But that cartoon in the Guardian with the bullring in her nose. Yeah. I mean, like that's that's or when she talked about facing racism. And they're like, mm. you know, people were like, oh, well, that's why are you bringing that into it's like, okay, you know what? She might be an odious person. I don't know. I, I really don't know much about her. Mm. But is that the way you want to talk? Like, again, going back to Islam, the, the, the attacks I saw on ex-Muslims and Muslim reformists, I mean, I you know. Majid Nawaz was called a porch monkey and an Uncle Tom and, you know, yeah. all kinds of things. Uh, Sarah Hader was native, all called... Native informant. Yeah, yeah. You know, all this shit. Now I see, like, black conservatives or even black liberals who are speaking out against this stuff. And it's like Uncle Tom, Coon, you know, whatever. Just, just the most horrible... It's the same kind of insults. Because they're going against this because, no, you're not the right kind of black person. Like, you know, mm. if you don't vote for Joe Biden, you ain't black. Like, I think more should be made of that. Mm. You know, like there's this idea of being politically black. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's it's awful. I mean, I suppose in that, in that sense, uh, you could have a, uh, you can have a wealthy white person who's suffered nothing in their lives. They've, you know had complete privilege for their whole lives but because of their political opinions they are more uh, ideologically compatible with blackness than maybe a black conservative or you know maybe you get because a... it comes down to it comes down to what is the what is the what is the ideology of the person because black and in, in this terminology is not the color of one's skin necessarily it's 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 what ideology do you conform to and if you don't conform to that ideology you're not black yeah, I mean, and that's Crenshaw again. Uh, she said, you know, uh, it's... White well, privilege, then yeah, you're an, you're an ally of... Yeah, sorry. No, but like I said, it's Crenshaw, right? It's, you want to be a mm. person who is black. No, no, okay. You are a black person who is a writer as opposed to a writer who happens to be black or you're a black person who's a politician as opposed to a politician who happens to be black, right? Your identity has to be forefront. And again, one of the stupid things is all, you know, this is all socially constructed, but it's socially constructed by whites, so now, okay, but if that identity was socially constructed by whites, why the hell do you want to take it on if you're fighting that then? But they're like, oh, no, we're going to take on that identity and we're going to use it. It's like, you know, it, the, mm. the whole thing falls apart. Like, it's there is no logical consistency in it. Mm. Do you have an opinion then on why all of this has become so so influential in society? Why Why has it been taken on by so many people? Okay, again, I think if you go back to education... Okay, well, there's a couple of things. Okay, the, so grab your tinfoil hat because I'm going to go a little crazy here. Uh, but, you know, they talked about the long march through the institutions, right? So this is the long march through the institutions going on. Like I said, in the 80s, it started coming into colleges of education. By about the late 90s, when this iteration of, I mean, you can, you know, Derek Bell started writing in the mid-70s on critical race theory. In the, in the 80s and stuff, you had the intersectional stuff coming out, but it all, the intersectional framework was put on critical race theory, <clears throat> you know, then was adapted like 
queer theory has its own intersectionality. Gender theory has its own type of intersectionality. All this stuff got adapted in the early 90s. So by the 2000s, you know, these people have masters and PhDs. They're coming out with, you know, degrees in African-American studies, sociology, whatever, all based on this stuff. You got Bush going on. He's being accused of racism, whatever. Okay, we're going to set up a commission to fight racism. Where are they going to go? Okay, well, I've got a degree in African-American studies, you know, focusing on critical race theory. Fine, you're hired. Mm. Slowly and surely it came in. And then, um, I don't know if you ever read uh, Jonathan Roach's book, Kindly Inquisitors. Uh, no, okay. but I, I, I know of it, yeah. Okay, so he talks about a humanitarian threat to liberal science. And this is what that is. It's like, you know, who doesn't want to be anti-racist? Who doesn't want to fight white supremacy? Right? I mean, they sound like great things, like fighting white supremacy, mm. being anti-racist. So you're tugging on people's goodwill. Mm. And it's, you know, it's like the people who go in for a joke to get audited at Scientologists. The next thing they know, you know, they're like giving up all their money to wait for Zenu to like, <laughs> you know, that's so it's just slowly but surely it's I mean, it's it's indoctrination into a cult. And it's mm. it. it but again, you're 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 preying on people's weaknesses, and you're preying on people's um, goodwill. Well, see, that's actually interestingly, that's kind of the same thing with Antifa. It's like that that just, Antifa just means anti-fascist. So if you don't like Antifa, that means you're a fascist. Yeah. Um. It's this kind of it's this kind of robbery or appropriation of all these terms. Uh, from a sort of maybe sort of general anodyne sort of meaning to an ideological meaning. So it's not just now that anti-fascism has to mean anti-fascism has now been a term appropriated by Antifa. And that means you must support all of the ideological um, ideas and the actions of Antifa because they are anti-fascism. They represent anti-fascism. Okay, but in Antifa's it's the ceiling, case... It's the ceiling. It's the appealing on... It's appealing on... As you say, it's appealing on the ideas, the sort of goodwill of people who... You know, don't who detest white supremacy or who detest fascism, um, but these but these terms are taken and sort of repackaged in a different way and then used propagandistically to to suggest that if you don't support Antifa, that means you're a fascist. But okay. because Antifa means anti-fascist. But again, they they, they they like I said, they're very loose with it. So Antifa, if you go back to the original Antifa in Europe, in like the 30s, and 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 like their later iteration still says the same thing. Whatever isn't communist is fascist. And that's what they mean by fighting fascism, right? So if it's not communist, it's fascist. So, yeah, that, that's a lot of things. So, yes, I mean, technically, I guess they are fighting fascism. If you, It was like the two plus two equals five thing, right? Mm. If you redefine the terms however you want, two plus two can equal whatever you want. Two plus two can equal unicorn. You know, if you redefine <laughs> the terms in such a way. So that's, that's again, it's there's a lot of word games. And... Mm. I think one of the best things to come out recently was uh, James's site. Their new discourse is a project he's working on, especially that yeah. you know the 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 translation from the wokeish that he did there. Like you know, you can actually go up and look up these terms, and he's put all the references, and you can see where they come from. If you want, if you're so inclined, you can go read the books and the papers and everything that he references. But you know, we kind of need a dictionary because yeah, you know, most normal rational people are opposed to fascism. But when you say property is whiteness and property is violence and, you know, it doesn't matter if you burn down a building because that's not really violence. I mean, mm. you know, it causes some problems there. Mm. 
Well, I mean, I think I think it, it probably has some different um, ideological roots, but I mean, there's a kind of comparison here that you can make with uh, back in the sort of early 2000s, you can make the comparison with uh, sort of the Noam Chomsky wing of the left, which saw a sort of moral equivalence between the US and Al-Qaeda uh, because the terms the terms on which um, Chomsky et al and uh, the terms on which they used were, were such to say that actually you know all of this you know this is all this is all pretty bad all imperialism this is all um, fascism almost it's, it, so it's, the, it's this sort of collapsing of all terms and all meanings into this vortex where you have you have no meaning and everything is the same and everything is as bad as everything else there is no distinction between for example an incredibly flawed and often exploitative liberal democracy like the united states and the actions of al-qaeda uh these are all these are all in some sense equivalent um and i think that's a very immature way and it's a symptom of 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 the de- the degeneration of of our discourse because it's 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 the loss of meaning yeah i, I mean, think and i don't know I, I think i think that's a slightly different ideological um phenomenon than what you're talking about but i think there's a uh, there's, there's some a parallels there. family resemblance there yeah oh yeah i don't know there, there's definitely again you want to talk about the imperialism in the united states and, you know i'm i'm not I don't like the term of imperialism from the United States. It's not like the British Empire or, you know, Russia had colonialism, you know, France had colonialism. It's not that. Uh, But like like you were talking about, everyone has McDonald's. Um, Okay, so I remember in 92, I did a student exchange to Brazil. And we were walking around looking. There was a, you know, a few of us who went down. We were walking around looking for something to eat one night, and then we were with a couple of Brazilian students from the university we were at. I said, oh, we'll go to Pizza Hut. And we're like, okay, we don't really want to eat Pizza Hut. We're in Brazil, but we were starved at this point. We're like, okay, fine, we'll go. And we get there, and there's a line around the block at Pizza Hut, and it was one of the most expensive restaurants in town because it was an American place. And so, like, yeah, you get that, right? You get the American culture and going at if you want to talk about American imperialism, it's it's more so that it's like you know I go to India around an American Thanksgiving and I saw and this was in the early two thousands I saw signs for Happy Thanksgiving in India. I'm like, mm. Jesus Christ, that's an American Harvest Festival. What the hell does that have to do with India? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so it's it was, it's things like that. You know, it, it's 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 spreading American culture and stuff, but you know. I don't like the wars for oil. I don't, you know, you know, mentioned Trump attacking Syria, or whatever. Let, let's stop some of that kind of stuff. Like uh, American foreign policy, especially in the Middle East has been a disaster, but let's, you know, let's not get too ahead of ourselves at comparing again. It, it'd be worse if the, if Hong Kong got democracy, because that's another form of colonialism than it would be if the CCP yeah. oppressed yeah. them. I, <laughs> I don't know how you can rationally say that. <laughs> Mm. No, I mean, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> it's a slightly different topic, and we could get into that uh, perhaps another time because it's a big enough topic in itself. Uh, the the uh, American foreign policy in the Middle East, which has been pretty disastrous in some ways, but uh, but I would defend it in in, in various other ways. Yeah. Um, partic- particularly the the removal of Saddam Hussein, I think, was 
uh, quite important. Um, actually, I think uh, the, the recent in uh, in twenty twenty this year there has been you know this this whole ridiculous peace deal with the Taliban, oh, um, which I think is actually I think that's perhaps one of the most stupid foreign policy mistakes that any country has ever made, and yeah. I think it will be it will be regretted uh, in the future. Uh, but that's that's a very different topic. We can. That's, oh no, that, that's, that's it. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast. American foreign policy. But uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I think uh, yeah, no, coming back to Hong Kong and imperialism and yeah, it's that people people seem to think that because because there are people fighting in Hong Kong for democracy, um, that they are therefore somehow stooges of of Western, either British or American um, policy. Uh, whereas the CCP is uh, because it's non-Western and because it's at least nominally communist, it is therefore a force for good. And you know, you know, these are these are these are good guys fighting the good fight. Um, and and people, there's too many people who still think that. It's it's, it's it just it just uh, it disgusts me actually the amount of people who think that. But you know, let, let's not let's brush underneath the rug that communism also is a Western philosophy, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's like the mayor in Portland. Uh, she, she's running for mayor, I should say, and she's got a lead on the mayor who's there right now, the guy who's allowed the protests for you know, the riots for 130 days now, 140 days. But the one who's running against him is winning. She's openly, she's like, she's openly supporting Antifa too. There's a picture of her wearing a pleated skirt with pictures of Mao, Stalin, Che Guevara. Like okay, if she was wearing like Hitler and Goebbels and you know, she would be lambasted. But it's Mao and it's Stalin and it's like Jesus yeah. Christ, woman. <laughs> well, as uh, she she's going for mayor, you say she's going for the mayor of Portland. She's leading Jeez. by double digits. She's openly supportive of Antifa, even more so than the the mayor right now. Um, I mean, it's crazy. Jeez. <laughs> Well, amazing. I mean, I my my I always wanted to. One of my big aims in life is to move to America or to visit America at least. But I'd like to live in America for a little while at least as well. Yeah, well um, but that has kind of been that's kind of been put on the back burner now because, uh, well, <laughs> well yeah. I mean, it's not re- it's not really it's not really an appropriate time I think to move to the states at the moment. Um, yeah, it just. Uh, I do slightly worry for for the USA. Yeah, I mean, what I worry about is this. Okay, like I look at certain things in the Middle East. There's, um, there. You know, okay, the the deal with deals with Israel, but also the the call for secularism that's going on in the Middle East right now that's coming from the populace is huge. And then there's also like that organization that uh, a friend of mine, Faisal or two friends, Faisal Omotar and Melissa Chen started Ideas Beyond Borders. When yeah. Faisal put out a call for, he told me this, and, I, and I'm probably going to get this number wrong, but he, he put out a call for translators in the region to translate English into Arabic. Now, they're also doing Farsi and Kurdish. And, but I think he said in the first day he got 15,000 applications for people in the region to translate this stuff. And they're putting themselves at risk, right? Translating mm. some of these books in that region... And putting it up for free is considered blasphemy because they're mm. against the Quran. Like, you know, they, they talk about 
equality and blah blah blah. Which you know they're against. You know, talk about secularism, which the Quran is not all about. Uh, so yeah, I mean they put themselves at risk. Uh, so there's a lot of things to look forward to, but if we in the yeah. West give up on that, like that, that's that, that was one of the things, like especially with the Islam thing, it's like we talk about free speech, you know, like I, you talk about free speech, you talk about the enlightenment, but we're putting in our own blasphemy laws here. We're putting, you know, like someone criticizes Islam, mm-hmm. they call them an Islamophobe. I'm like, what's that going to do to someone in Jordan who, you know, like there was a lawyer who, no, sorry, it wasn't a lawyer. It was an ed- editor who did some stupid cartoon and on his way to the trial, someone came up and shot him on the steps of the court courthouse. You know, wh- these people are putting their lives on the line and they're trying to talk about our value and they're trying to incorporate them as human, you know, like universal human rights, but we're not even supporting them. Like, where do we go? Like, who's going to hold them up? If, mm-hmm. You know, if, if we don't. Well, yeah, no, I think that's actually a good point. I think despite maybe all this sort of pessimistic thing, we're looking at Trump and, and the woke and uh, all these negative developments. I think one of the most promising uh, developments of recent years is the growth of um, secular um, atheists, ex-Muslim movements in the Middle East and the West. I don't know if you have had a chance to read um, Eben Warwick's new book uh, called Leaving the Allah Delusion Behind, uh, no. where he, he writes about the, the history of um, the history of free thinking in Islam, going back you know to the very beginning of Islam um, and up to the present day. There's this new outpouring of ex-Muslims and freethinkers and secularists all across uh, the Middle East and Arab world and the Muslim world and um, yeah, no, I think it's that's one of the most uh, promising and happy developments of recent years is this growth of, uh, of people who are challenging uh, theocracy and Islamism uh, and who want democratic and secular regimes uh, in the Middle East yeah I mean, um, that- I think, like, I think it was, uh, it was Faisal who was telling me this, like, they don't have, there was no term for secularism. So, I mean, like, a lot of this stuff, the, like, these translators are having to come up with terms and words because there was nothing in the language, mm-hmm. right? So, it's, instead of using secularism, I, th- I think they use the term uh, civic society. And I think that's, like, part of the problem is, oh, we have to put Western values. First of all, you know, I don't like calling them Western values. Yes, they were upheld in the West, and it's values out of the Enlightenment. But these are values that were universal. These are uh, David Deutsch yeah. in his book uh, Beginning of Infinity. He writes about pockets of enlightenment throughout history. Now, you know, they kind of built off each other and they refined and they got better and they gave more rights along the way. But you've had this stuff. I mean, the Islamic Golden Age was, you know, Greek philosophy getting into Islam, and it, and it was mainly from Persians. Mm-hmm. It was and North Africans more so than Arabs. But you had that. Um, you know, the Greeks themselves, like some of their writings and stuff, they it's pre-Enlightenment. You can see the, you know, some of the stuff that's comes out in the Enlightenment. You can see that it's inseparable in there. Uh, this one essay that I wrote, uh, that I, sorry, wrote, that I read about this, it was this guy in, in Ethiopia, his name was Jacob, and he, he got, he ran afoul of the king who was Catholic at that point, and, uh, he went into hiding for two years and before Hume and Kant and Locke, 
he came up with ideas very similar to them. So he was about 100 years before them. And he sat in a cave for mm. two years and he came up with these writings and people found it. You know, I, I read an essay about him. I was like, it's the things like that. Like, go out and find this guy's writings for me. I'd like to see what his interpretation of those were. You know, these are universal values. So that the, shipping secularism and Western values to the Middle East, like secularism was poisoned. Um, when they heard the term secularism, they think of the Shah, they think of Qaddafis, uh, mm. they think of those kind of things. They think of the Assads because... These were secular dictators that were kind of put in by the British and the French and the U.S. So they think of that as Western and they don't. So it's it's being poisoned. So I think, you know, selling it as Western values, which I don't think you should. These are universal values. These are universal rights. You can talk about how uh, some of the some of the thinkers from the Middle East, especially the golden age of Islam, how they influenced thinkers in, in Europe. And part of that led to the Enlightenment. I mean, you, you can tie it all back. Mm. To them. You, you can sh- show them a pride in their own thought. Uh, I'd recommend the the book that I just mentioned, even Warwick's book, mm-hmm. uh, which has a section uh, which details the sort of connections between the ancient world and the Islamic world and the modern world. And in particular, he talks about Averroes, or even Rushd, yep. the great medieval... Muslim writer, philosopher, and thinker, um, who was obviously influenced, as as many people were at that point, by you know ancient Greek philosophy, which had been incorporated within to within uh, within the Muslim Islamic Golden Age, and even Rushd's idea of, I think the the sort of separation between philosophy and theology, and he said these these operate in different spheres of of uh, of inquiry. Um, and this idea, which uh, which in one way is kind of kind of uh, allows theology to exist alongside philosophy, mm-hmm. but taken to a more radical um, endpoint, it means that philosophy ultimately pushes theology out of uh, out of out of the sphere of inquiry. Uh, theology is refuted by and replaced by philosophy. Um, this idea. Um, and its more radical endpoint was taken up, I think, by Spinoza, um, this sort of progenitor, I suppose, of the modern radical enlightenment. Um, and he got it through, I uh, won't detail because I can't remember exactly the exact chain of transmission uh, that, 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 uh, that led from Rushd or Averroes to, to Spinoza. But yeah, even Rushd's ideas come, uh, you know, through several uh, different books and writers and thinkers eventually make their way to Spinoza. They influence Spinoza, which influences, you know, the course of the Enlightenment. So there's this wonderful sort of multicultural, um, uh, let's say, potion, let's say this mixture of... Yeah, well, you've, you've got this sort of wonderful sort of multicultural concoction because you've got the ancient Greek philosophy influencing the Islamic Golden Age... Uh, you've got thinkers like Averroes, um, and his ideas come to influence the Enlightenment, which you know arises out of Christian Europe, and in particular, his ideas influence Spinoza, who's the great Jewish heretic. So you've got this this ultimate expression, if you like, of multiculturalism, which culminates in this wonderful Enlightenment um, philosophy, and uh, and so that goes back to the point that isn't, this isn't just about Western values mm. or 
Eastern values or Islamic values. You know, these things have for for millennia they have mixed together to produce um, new syntheses of ideas and philosophies. Uh, these things are universal. They are not. They are not like confined by geographical or ethnic or religious uh, regions. You know. No, but okay. Like just the one thing on Averroes, because uh, I have read some of the Golden Age uh, thinkers, and he was one of them. What you're talking about, I think that came from his book, The Incoherencies of the Incoherencies, and that was like a refutation of Al Ghazali's book, The Incoherencies of the Philosophers. <clears throat> So that's where Al-Ghazali wrote that. A lot of people say Al-Ghazali said, go get away from mathematics and science and all that. No, no. What he said was, there is enough math and science. We have enough. We don't need anything new. Any philosophy or anything that is thought about now has to be thought about to glorify the greatness of Islam and Allah. And it all should be for the praise and the glorification of Islam. Al-Ghazali was a Sufi, and that's one of the Sufi tenets. Um. Mm. So Averroes' book, The Incoherencies of the Incoherencies, was a direct refutation on that. But going back to Al-Ghazali and what, you know, like how you said, like this stuff comes into Europe. So when the Mongols came in and sacked Baghdad and then that enterprise ended, educate, like that knowledge, because there was Chinese philosophers, there was African philosophers, there were Indian philosophers, there were learners from all around the world that came in to study in Baghdad. That went back to its local loca locations, but I mean, Europe still had the, the spice trade and the silk trade, so they're still getting that information coming in, so that came in, but from, from the Middle East as well, Al-Ghazali came into Europe. Um, okay, Al-Ghazali was a fan of Augustine, and how Augustine kind of, I don't want to say codified, because you know, you got the Council of Nicaea and all that, but it, you know, Augustine did kind of like a codification of Christianity, and he wanted to put it all down into one thing. Ghazali liked that, so he liked, he was inspired by Augustine. And then some of the stuff Ghazali wrote, um, St. Francis, uh, sorry, St. Aquinas was influenced by that. And he used that in his writings for how to, you know, punish heretics and how to burn witches at the stake. So, I mean, you had this, the stream of thought from both ends was coming in. And, yeah. And, okay. This is not like, you know, a thousand and one Arabic inventions where Arabs did everything. Like it's part of the reason that brought about the enlightenment, but it's also part of the reason that brought about the Spanish inquisition. You, know, like, mm. yeah. you got you got good and bad out of that. <laughs> well, I mean that that's that's exactly the point, though. It's not it's not that these things are sort of confined to any religion or no. ethnicity or geographical region. It's that these are ideas which have been broached, which have influenced each other. And the the question uh, now and well for the past couple of centuries has been to figure out which of those ideas are the best ideas, regardless mm. of their origin, regardless mm. of you know any sort of parochial um, starting point that they come from. The idea is what are the best ideas that a society can function on, um, and these things are universal. You know we can we can apply these anywhere because all of these ideas or many of these ideas have come up multiple times in many different areas and have influenced each other. They're not they're not some sort of purely white Western thing or some sort of purely Islamic thing. Everything yeah. has kind of touched each other in a way and the point is to figure out as rational thinkers and as humanists uh what, what, what are the best ways what are the best ideas that we have produced that we can we can use to base our civilization upon oh yeah totally uh, 
Okay, and on that, I think I will, you know, start closing this out. But I have to ask you one last question before I give you a final word here. Since you do work for Aereo, do you guys have a rule that Helen is not allowed cooking at any company functions? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not sure if there's a rule, but... Uh... <laughs> I mean, so far, so far, we haven't actually had like a physical company function. Uh, but on the on the day that happens, I'll I'll bring that up. I'll say we've got one rule, one rule, one rule at Ario: uh, no no cooking from from Helen. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, like I said, um, if there's anything else you want to mention, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, I'll put a link to the article about Hume in the in the description. Um, if there's anything at all, like go ahead, give me the floor. Um. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I mean, we've talked about almost everything aside from from David Hume to right. this discussion, but it's, it's been fun. Um, yeah, and no, I mean, if, yeah, if you've got a link to my article, then you'll have the link at the bottom of that, my ARIO profile, which will have my Twitter and everything on that. So that's that will contain everything that that may be of interest to, to anyone. Well, okay, on that note, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks a lot for talking. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it's been good. It's been good. It's very enjoyable. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll be back.